Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. Hi everyone and welcome to another edition of 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. And today uh, the book we're going to be covering is Road of Humanity, but before we get into that, we are actually blessed with the company of Thomas from Flyos. How are you doing, Thomas? I'm doing very well. I'm very happy to be here. Now, I didn't warn Thomas I was going to throw him under the bus and tell, uh, tell us your big success you got going on right now. Or anything you can tell us. He's incredibly jazzed right here. We're looking on camera here. <laughs> yeah, I'm, uh, I'm in a very good mood. I'm very glad to be here with, with you guys to talk about the uh, Dark Age Supplement Road of Humanity. And uh, yeah, I've, uh, I've read it through. It's, uh, I've read it a long time ago, and uh, now it's uh, official. Yep, I'm uh, I'm blessed, and uh, I'm glad to be uh, spending my time with you guys. Perfect, uh, I am too. Because DJ strangely isn't here right now, so that's an awesome fill-in last minute. I'm teasing. We knew we knew Thomas was coming. Super busy guy. <laughs> Have to plan that in, so it's a good thing. Um, but accompanying me today are also Mike, Brennan, and Nick. If you guys want to say hello real quick. Hey, hey. aloha. Hey everyone. All right. So without. Uh, skimming too much what's going to happen here for the format folks we're trying to maximize our time and get in all the commentary we we have for it and a bunch of people here so what we're going to do is i'm going to kind of narrate through the intro of each chapter segment by segment and these guys took a lot of notes on what they want to talk about i do apologize if they tend to go far west with it um it's the point of it right we want whatever is inspired to be talked about to be talked about to give you uh, maximum entertainment from this review um so without further ado we're going to start right now with talking about the prelude, which goes over the legacy of Cain. In this prelude, we have uh, the main character, which is Gregory, who's narrating. Um, Gregory is, of course, a vampire, and his sire is Gunther. Or is it Gunther? I forgot about that. It's Gunther or Gunther. Pardon me if I have that wrong. But basically, the synopsis is Gregory feels kind of off-put because Gunther's like, let me take you out hunting out of nowhere. You know, he's been under his sire's accounting for a bit. Kind of been shown the ropes already. He's given permission to do a thing or two. And they're going to an old tavern, kind of walk through the city. And it culminates to a very big, big finish. And now the big finish we'll talk about briefly. It's uh, it's kind of ruined if I give you the big details of it. Uh, but I'm going to let these guys kind of chew on it for a little bit. But I will say this. Uh, because, it's not going to make sense otherwise. Uh, Gunther basically takes Gregory out and tells him we're going to go talk to this guy by a campfire for a little bit and doesn't tell him why and the whole time Gunther thinks all right we're just gonna feed from this guy I already know how to do this I'll know what's going on but that's not quite what happens and if you want to tackle what happens and why Thomas yeah sure well it, it's a it's a nice intro that uh, of course has a enigmatic ending the point is to show the sire being wise and mysterious but also kind of a mischievous and, and, and weird. Um, th that place, when we play as Gregory, see as we, we read as Gregory, we're placed as the reader. Uh, we don't understand fully what's there. We're being naive, young, learning, and impatient. And it, it, I think it's a nice introduction to see what's really all the book about. I agree. Uh, Mike, you had something. Yeah, so... Whenever I play or when I read, I, I, I see what's happening like it's in a movie, right? And I felt like when I got to the end of this scene between Gunter 
and Gregory, and I'm thinking it's all gonna come together. It just, Gunter's message falls a bit flat, right? He demonstrates the ability to commit a cold-blooded murder at a certain point in his story. Uh, he shows subtle signs of, of losing his grip. Uh, there's the sensation that we're almost like watching the opening to a, a, a buddy cop film. I feel like if the story had had another page, I would have enjoyed it so much more. But then Gunter does his thing and okay, bye now. Here's all my stuff. <laughs> Good luck, old buddy. And we don't get to, we don't get the satisfaction for better or worse, right? Whether this is a tragedy or a hopeful story of knowing what's going on with Gunter and what he was trying to teach Gregory. Nick or Brennan, you got a comment to that? I, I kind of agree that it's a it's a bit difficult to kind of get the the lesson that's being taught here, um, and I think the the nature of that it brought a question to my mind. Like, was this guy on the path of illumination, and it was naturally that enigmatic? Um, and we'll get more on that path later as as we kind of progress through the book. But he tries to kind of teach this lesson in what is probably one of the most brutal ways possible. And, and the message does kind of fall flat, uh, which makes you think, well, it's a very brutal way to teach a, a lesson that, uh, that you want to make sure hits home. Uh, if, if you're going so far as to murder somebody in front of another person. Um, but at, at the end of it, he, he kind of says this weird revelation, you know, like, Cain was a man when he committed his sin. Therefore, the the very essence of of what we have as our as as our nature is is also the same thing that exists within man. And and he tries to really nail that home with this jealous act of where this guy tells him about the most beautiful sunrise, and he's just like, "Oh, well, you're gonna make me feel that way," and knocks him over the head with a rock. Interesting, uh, Brennan. You started saying something. Uh, yeah. So. I, at first, I was a little confused as to why that, that ever happened, right? And it took me a while to kind of digest it. And the only thing I can think of is, um, I don't I don't know, I, I, I would agree with Nick that he's uh, on a path of illumination, right? I think that is the, the takeaway from it, and that he was trying to instruct, that was like the first lessons of him instructing his child on that path. I think that's what we were seeing. Um, but... Uh, I will say, even with that interpretation, I'm still kind of confused by it. It still doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So I can help you here. It's uh, If you take what Thomas was saying, I think he's spot on. He's talking about how this... You, you, the reader, are watching how Gregory's naive. right? He got all this information given to him, and he, he even says it. I memorize it very well. I memorize it all. But as any teacher knows, what do you know if you just memorize words given to you? But what do you know? And the fact is, is that his sire could tell that he wasn't getting it. He's not going to get it. And in Gunther, it was a failing that he couldn't, his child wasn't learning. He was just memorizing. So he had to move it to the next steps, right? And that next step was to give a demonstration. A demonstration so profound that explains everything. And what he had told his child is that all the stuff I've told you relates back to Cain. And in that one act, that was that. He was done. And then he left. And that's the key point, right? The chill comments how he never sees a sire again. That's like basically yeah. all he had left. That is the entirety of walking a road. 
It's here's the lessons, here's what you have. I taught you what I could. What you learn now is all on you. And that's the keys given. And that's and that's what I took from it. It's not to say I'm right or wrong, but that's exactly how I, I saw the sire being uh, to the child at that point. But maybe it gets more relevant as we dive into the chapter, right? In chapter one, Mercy for the Prodigal, it talks about the history of the path, uh, the road, excuse me, the philosophy and practice. And in this, they do it in, I think the author's brilliant in the way he kind of makes this a good versus evil telling, but has a human involved in the whole mix. And in this, the characters are Paul, and Paul is the actual father. I, well, let me describe him. Paul is a very beautiful young man, but his son, whose house he visits, is in his 60s and is older, but his son is the one who's commenting, i.e. narrating, this experience. And so he, can, he knows it's his dad. He's first off put by because how could it be? He doesn't know his dad's a vampire. And this all gets revealed in the story. But the part I want to confuse you with, where Paul is both beautiful, blonde, bright, and all this, typical characteristics of good, right? Especially in a lot of different dark uh, sort of theatrical writing. Michelle is his buddy he brings in, and Michelle might as well be the devil himself, right? Dark-haired, uh, laissez-faire, very cynical, very sarcastic to most of the points that Paul has. But knowing that, when they get to the history, in particular, Paul's perspective about the road of humanity and how it began, what did you guys think about that story relating to Troy and Erica? Oh, it's a... Uh... It, it, it's kind of uh, weird to see the, the Bruja back in the before the fall uh, of the clan. Yes. Uh, to, to remember that they were keen philosophers and that Arikel has a, it, its own kind of a twisted way of uh, of being uh, so attracted to beauty. And I, I think it's a very uh, you know um, story that passed through the stories through kindred through oral history and that got embellished with the time for sure. And uh, it, it's kind of nice to see how it reflects uh, Michel, which is basically and called the, the, the good guy and the bad guy, the, the good and the bad cops, where um, now the, the, the human story is not the one being killed, but the one learning things, because now everything is based, based on the, the, the humanity uh, of it all. And it, it's not right versus wrong. You, you, there's a lot of things thrown away, but the foundation of this, of the story, is based on Arikel and Troil. And I had difficulty to, uh, to you know, make it stick to it completely, but I understand what they were wait, waiting to do, and this kind of a quest uh, that usually gets uh, kind of, a, you know, relinked uh, to, to Solo is a, is a nice twist that I think gets more close to the humanity and profound sense of justice to the to the Bruja and the aesthetic uh, justice of uh, beauty from uh, from the Torah, for sure. I agree. Um, yeah, Nick. Uh, without question, they really kind of try and root this uh, this this path between those two clans, and and Salat comes down in there as well, um, and gets brought up way harder uh, later on than in this section. But they they mention that Troil and uh, and and Arakel, they go off for 101 days. Uh, you'll notice that's always a pattern in, uh, in in mythology. It's always a set and then one extra day. Um, they go off to make this amazing artwork. They come back and uh, and to sit, without actually saying it, though they almost blatantly say it, they somehow enchanted this artwork in such a way that it 
has the viewers who see the artwork uh, kind of confronted with their own sins and loss of morality and the damage that they've done to mortal and, and canine alike. And they're kind of forced to deal with that. It's almost like a, it's like a slap in the face right into Humanitas. And now before we, we continue on that, it's my fault. I didn't describe what the story was that Paul said. It would make a lot more sense between what Thomas has said and Nick just said. In synopsis format, basically you already know Eric L. and Troil. And Troil is referred to as a male here, definitely, which makes it unique to me. They yeah. are troubled by the behavior in the second city. They see where they're at. They see where everyone is. And they feel a profound sense of maybe guilt, maybe a sense of responsibility they should have. And they're worried for their brethren. And so to puzzle it out, they go to a healer. Now, they don't say Solid. Everyone who's ever played this game knows it's Solid. And they go to him, and Solid says, well, you'd have to do something that shows them what's happening to remind them of what they are or who they are. And so they come up with this great work of art. Now, and then obviously Nick and Thomas went over, I need to go over that again. But when they talk about revealing it, there's two important points. Number one, what art did they make to show? Right? They talk about smoothing out stone and sculpting it. And I think in Genius, the author deliberately didn't tell you if it was a mirror. could have been sculpting all around this yep. beautiful mirror. It could have been just stone itself. Maybe he showed Cain killing Abel. That's possible. That's one thing that came to mind. But it's more important that you, the reader, kind of symbolize what that would have been. Because what art was so beautiful that when you show a whole city of vampires that they begin to weep? pull out their hair. Um, the ones who were incredibly, uh, we'll call them vi villainous is the only way to say it. Those guys were just offended. Were just upset it even existed. But these two sat there and offered comfort to each and every one of them. And, and Cain was moved and came out and said his piece. It's, a, it's an interesting work. But what I want to switch gears from, that was Paul's take on the history of this road. <laughs> what yep. about Michelle? <laughs> right? <laughs> Uh, Michelle comes out and tells this wise man's tale. And I'll paraphrase. Feel free to correct me, guys. But Michelle basically says, uh, let me tell you a story about a wise guy on the side of the road. And there's this uh, people that come around. And he's doing all these good works for him. For instance, there's a guy who abused his wife and he's in the tavern getting drunk. Guy comes out and he says, hey, look at your wife. She's beaten. You did that. By the way, she's pregnant with your unborn son. And a guy goes, oh, man, take my bottle of wine. I'm never touching it again. Come with me, my wife. And he dances off. And he sees that. Now, this the person who's seeing all this, I should probably make sure you note that. It's as if it's Michelle. Right? Michelle's a murderer in this tale, looking at this wise man. He then talks about a thief, and you can get kind of how this goes, right? The thief, Because just from the lessons here, thief comes by and says, Hey, you know, um, here's a waif of a woman who starved and didn't have anything, and she's near, near to death. And this is because you did this. Look at what you did. And the thief goes, oh man, take my money, take my riches. I'm so sorry. I hope she's better with that. I'm never stealing again. I will only do honest labor. And he takes off. And then the murderer comes over. And the guy looks up and says, uh, how's it going? And the murderer is like, what are you doing? He says, oh, well, you know, I'm just kind of um, showing what's going on, you know. And the murderer goes, what if the person doesn't care? Like, what, what, what lesson do you have here? And more or less, because by now I've missed some points. That's the gist of the tale. The murderer walking up and being honest, this guy coughs up the beans and says, look, here's the waif. That's a chick I hired. She's right there. and She's fine. Yeah, she needs food. She's like, We're going to split the profits. Here's the wine 
from the other guy, and yeah, his wife got beaten, but you know, eh, she wants money, and I help her out too. Um, it's what you do. These people need to believe in morality, and so we kind of feed it to them, and then we, we live on the profits here. And the murderer goes, oh, interesting, and just starts walking off, and the wise man's like, wait a second. Like, what? You're not going to say what you did? He goes, no, I'm going to go do what you do. I think it's very interesting what you did here, but now i got a convenient excuse of how not to get caught when I do it. And he just walks off. What do you guys think about that? See me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I first, in, in Michelle's tale, I thought that the murderer was Cain, mostly because he's called the murderer. And he carries a mark upon his brow. And he carries a mark upon his brow. But... I also thought, and I didn't come to this thought until later in the book when they start talking about the division within the road, that Paul's perspective is, it's piercing, right? And it feels so profound because it is also the perspective of the people who come to the road of humanity intuitively, right? Okay. Michelle's perspective, even though I don't think he's on humanity at all, as a matter of fact, I think he's a sinner. Michelle's perspective is that of the people who train their children on the road by road, right? It is, this is what we do, and this is the correct response to be as humane as possible in this situation. And this is how you restrain the beast, because this response is the prescribed process. This is the procedure for each of these types of offenses of the beast. And it says to me that they want us to understand the intuitive approach to the road of humanity coming there because you are deeply personally possibly even religiously convicted is the true essence of the road and that other thing is a lever you can learn to pull so you don't become a white i like it i wholeheartedly disagree (laughs) i i I think I, i don't think they were trying to get to that point at all um, I think uh, it, in the suggestion, uh, there's a suggestion kind of put in place here. And it's that uh, they worry that they sin against one another. Uh, and that way they, they don't worry that they're being sinned against themselves. It it has this evil, mani- manipulative uh, uh, suggestion to it. Like the laws of man were put down to keep them in their place. And Canaanites who follow those laws are also put in that place. Uh, to be feasted upon by those who know they are above those laws. Uh, It's exactly where I said it's a Timisi kind of a thinking, because when you see later on in uh, later chapters how Timisi see the the, the road of humanity, and of course they discard it, and of course they don't give a, a, a damn about it, but they see it as useful as it could be, because... They, that puts uh, kindred in a weak position when you know how to use their moral values to actually be able to, to outsmart them. And it, I, it, what really triggers me in, in that um, two stories uh, between uh, Michelle and Paul, which are saint names, basically, also, <laughs> it, it, it's that the way they describe this, uh, this culture is basically the effect of true faith on kindred when they pull out the hair they weep they get really really angry with it and on the other hand um you see that uh, the 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 wolf can uh disguise as a wolf and 
this imbalance, this dichotomy of uh, how to use and how you can be true with the road of humanity it, it is, you know, think in the rest of the book where it can be the same, uh, the, the same coin, but with two different faces. This is very true. Um, I think this actually opens up a little more. Oh, yes, Mike, I want to, you've, you've been touched. <laughs> so, yes, yes. The the Zemisi sire The Zemisi sire It's it was profound. It was profound. We'll get back <laughs> to Mike. Um so yep. what happened here is that uh the rest of this uh comes about uh to point at virtue and vice in terms of humanity, right? And virtue and vice I think dances the story. Right, their history opens up to roll into this. And I think Michelle's point, as Paul's point, uh, was to kind of bring this about in their two different versions of the tale. You mentioned two sides of the same coin. I think that's the, that's the path they took. One very much humane, emotion, and passionate. And the other one, well, using what you need to get by, but still blending in. And so I, I feel you're, you're both right on that, you and Nick. Um, but dropping down and uh, seeing what they feel about the virtue and vice, that's where things get a bit... Well, it definitely becomes a debate. Yeah. It definitely becomes yeah. a debate. Um, basically, without going the play-by-play, -play, they get into empathy versus cruelty regarding distinguishing man from the beast, and again for conscience versus conviction. You know, that's what I saw was... I agree. I agree completely that that had to be said, but are there anything specific you guys pulled from that in Virtue and Vice that was like, well, that's good, but might have been something different? There is. There definitely is. Um, I think the the best part about this entire section is how heavily it highlights in very bold ways that being human is not natural for a vampire. Thinking like a human is not natural for a vampire. It doesn't matter whether they used to be a human or not or whether they found the road through a mentor, or whether they found the road instinctually, any way that they come across it, they have to fight at every turn to think like a human. And, uh, and even if they're just pretending, which is another beautiful thing it highlights, you can just fake it and make it on this path. Um, there's other variants, or I'm sorry, on this road, there's other variants and paths where you can't fake it and make it, but they, they say very specifically, if even if you don't regret your decisions, you have to act like you do. It's a very important part of it. Fair enough. Brennan. <clears throat> uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm glad you ended with that because that's something that didn't honestly make sense to me. They state that uh, remorse is what helps them uh, keep the beast restrained. But that I, I there was a disconnect for me on that. And I don't understand why the beast would care about remorse. So it's it's understanding the nature of what the beast is. Even in here, they point out that they're monsters, completely. We have to get that perspective. When a vamp when you're made a vampire, you are a monster. You are that beast. It's your internal urges made um, manifest in you. That's it. And you don't have anything to stop it other than your own sense of morality that you carried over with you. That's it. That's why this is one of the roads, one of the few, where you can find it on your own. Strong enough morality, battling that beast, you eventually learn to win those 
internal wars against, well, I won't even say right from wrong, but we'll just simply say you're not ripping into everybody you come across, which most likely would be what the beast wants when you're hungry. Mm-hmm. And that's what they're getting into. But in terms of remorse, remorse is the act of feeling bad, sorry, or in, we'll say introspective to the actions you just did and recognizing it for a mistake to not be repeated. That's the difference. Like you can have remorse that you were caught doing something you shouldn't have done. Everyone's done this. But you're not actually sorry because you did it in the first place. Yes, Thomas. Well, the the remorse is is the emotion that comes from empathy. And empathy is what actually keeps the beast at bay. Uh, There is a point in in the book where it said the beast is the manifestation of all the base and contemptible within a person. So it's selfishness, savagery, greed, jealousy, hatred, and even fear. And it's... Uh, uh, when I read that part in, in in chapter one, that made me think about a game that I think we all know. Uh, it's Skyrim. And you see Alduin as being the ultimate badass dragon that just wants to devour the world. And that's what the beast is. And on the other hand, you have Partunax, which is at the, uh, at the top of his game, on, on, on top of the mountain, and that, that just say, what is better, to be born good or to overcome your evil nature through great effort? And I think that's what the, 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 hmm. the road of humanity could be applied to, uh, to a monster. I like that. I like that. You skyrimmed it. Yeah, of course. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well done. Uh, Mike, you back? Yeah. Am I back? Can you guys hear me? We can. Yeah, we, we can. can. Uh, yep. Now, we'll be polite here. I feel you're on something monumental. Can you recall that point? Uh, vaguely, I was just—I I was just gonna say that I don't think me and Nick disagree about what that wise man is saying. I just think that that wise man is the perspective of the sire who has come to Road of Humanity and says, "Listen, rules are for manipulating people, including yourself." Well, if you, on ahead. that, on that, you saying it, rules are. Michelle was the one beating that drum. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. Oh, so don't don't misunderstand <laughs> me. I don't mean, when I say the sire, I don't mean Paul. I okay. mean that the wise man in Michelle's story Got is you. the now same as you. the Zemis later in the book and the high clan sire who is saying to his child, these are the rules that we break the beast back with so it gets that sensation of burning its hand when it was told to keep its hand off the stove regardless of whether it's artificial or not. Rules are for manipulating people into doing what you want them to do, including yourself. All right. On virtue and vice, I think we've uh, we've hit all points unless somebody has a parting shot. I'm willing to let that happen. Because it's hard. Thomas Skyrim did. I mean, that pretty much crowned the top of it right there. <laughs> that was neat. That, that, that fit a yep. good, nice box. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it cascades down to Revelation where they're trying to, you know, basically... Put it all together. And the meaning itself, at least in the story format, I really feel that Thomas was trying to get to know, not Thomas, I apologize, that Paul was trying to get to know his son, right? The young vampire was trying to get to know the old man that he wasn't there for and really reach out and understand what it is going on. And here I'm going to add my two cents, the most selfish thing I've ever read. Even in Road of Sin, even in a Bali clan book, Thomas tells him, Hey, tell me about your life and your kids and what happened and what went on. I said, Thomas, again, 
Why do I keep doing that? Uh, I meant Paul. Oh man. Be because because it happens in France, and I'm French, and uh, yeah, I get it. <laughs> Unconsciously, he did exactly. Paul, Paul does it just to help that out. Paul tells his son, uh, "Tell me about your kids and your descendants." And when his son starts telling him, he almost immediately recalls a tale of his daughter. And his daughter, unfortunately, contracts a, a sickness and, and dies, but gave birth to another girl, if I'm correct. And that's just what happened. But that sadness, like he remembers digging in the ground and it was cold and how long it took. And he felt that the world didn't want to give her away, didn't want to take her away from him. And that's what he had to do. But then, finally, Paul, not Thomas, Paul, was able to cry, right? These bloody tears. And Michelle almost sneered. I could tell in that story, it was like, okay, that's where we're at. And that's where I was like, that's selfish. What? Okay. So then I sat there and said two sides of the coin. Which side is Paul truly on? And that's where I had my doubts. Because think about it. He's traveling with Michelle. Here he is talking to his son. He's dead be dead. Comes back out of nowhere. And he says, ah, oh, you're, you're in your 60s. You're going to die. I get that. But, you know, I need, I need passion. We need passion. We're beings that need to see this humanity reflected and that's what it is and now I see your pain and now I can cry and it feels great to feel this passion thank you and no I love you son and he's like I love you too dad and I sat there and went you manipulative piece of but that's me what what do you guys think well I don't think it was a secret I, I thought they, they said that right off the bat that the reason why he was here was so that he could shut away that that part of his life he came here to make uh you know that a little bit of atonement or, or whatever it was um he was here for what it will call later a moment of truth well closure is closure anyone has a right to see closure in their life that's a very humane trait is to see that tie it off and a father want to come to his son i'm not contesting that that's what they said what he did was he wanted to cry he wanted a memory that he could tether to war against his own beast he wasn't there for his son he was there for him do you oh, see yeah. what i'm saying and that to me, that's crap, right? It's like, ah, oh, well, you okay, fine. Your son lived like a pauper, scraped from the earth what he could. You knew about it the whole time, but that's okay, because you're a vampire now. And that's all oh, humanity. Yes, Thomas. Yeah, I, I had the same feeling as you did. And uh, I'm watching what we do in the shadows, and I had this impression that he was an emotional vampire that just needs to have that passion <laughs> to drain him. <laughs> Bravo. <Bravo>. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, Brennan, I believe you had a comment. Yeah, I, I, I thought this, this closing of it, and that, that scene specifically where they're talking, where he's telling uh, Paul about his granddaughter, harken back to that, that line I brought up about regret uh, keeping the beast at bay. I, I don't feel as though this absentee dad actually came back for any actual atonement or for any connection with the son. I think this was an exercise in that regret that by knowing his son, what he missed out on, and everything with that, that tied back to it. And yes, this was a selfish thing on Paul's part. All right, now Mike, they're going to get in this pattern with you, the best for last, and specifically, my man, you had a brilliant takeaway. I know you did. You collaborated in yeah. notes, and I love to highlight and make sure you read this verbatim. So Paul, I got to set this up a little bit. Paul tries to sell to his son, I think it's pronounced Guillaume, that 
it's okay that this thing made him cry and that it's still good because you know we can't really appreciate the best parts of life without loss right and i've heard this before i've heard it in film i've heard it from people who fancy themselves philosophers i've heard it from preachers i've heard it from people who have explicitly shunned religion i've heard it all over the place and i most passionately disagree <laughs> with this trope of a conclusion about the bitter giving value to the sweet right progress gives value to loss loss gives value to nothing to improve make struggle and sorrow worthwhile and not to see a thing wither and, and fade after having experienced its zenith right you get to the high point and then you have to watch it die and that's what makes it real good bullshit uh i have never understood this fatalist morose infatuation with needing pain to understand pleasure or loss to appreciate gain if the way is forward and the sky is the limit i see no ceiling on the universe that an immortal should have to respect they're not going to die, right? It may be human to no loss, but to accept it in exchange for nothing is to take life, specifically quality of life, for granted, which someone that has an infinite quantity of life should never do. Fair enough. Um, Brennan? Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree with that, Mike, because um, loss... <laughs> I feel as though the value from loss was a, a trope that was made because loss is inevitable. And I'm going to disagree with you completely on immortals, quote unquote, never facing loss. Because if there's one thing we all know, if vampirism is immortality, then immortality is a high attrition rate, right? We, by, by the sole fact of the antediluvians taking out the second generation, no one below Cain has eternity. That's been thrown out. And even if these vampires did, they still live in a world where they will they will get attachments to, to things, to people, to herds, uh, servants, whatever, and they will lose them. Or if they don't have these attachments, they'll lose themselves. I think that that trope of, of getting value from loss is something that is needed to process loss. I think that's, that's what I got out of that that scene with um with talking about uh, the passing of his daughter and Paul's granddaughter and uh the well the very ending of this whole chapter was that there is an end coming and that there was going to be that it was inevitable all right mike so process lost however you like right but losing a thing does not make it more precious retroactively right if a thing is good while you have it and you lose it that is a sad that's that's sad there's not value to be gained you got to chew that up and spit it out you got to deal with it you process it however you want right what what where you find value is in progress if you lose a thing and then you figure out later how not to lose something you value or at least not lose it so soon well then you've gained something from that loss right but you don't you don't appreciate your money more after you've spent it right you don't love right mike, exactly mike you're forgetting the lessons of tanith bal sahar i'm just Listen, saying what what did what did oh. the zemis teach you why did he kill remember think back to that book 
Why did he kill that beautiful boy who gave him such pleasure? You remember? I disagreed then too. I understand you disagreed <laughs> could, then too. He could have he could have improved on that experience. But it taught you about canines. That's my point. It the did. whole and twice it it's teaching about canines. So if on Road of Sin, they're telling you that loss is selfishness. It's complete selfishness. They will never have that pleasure again, and they forbid anyone to have it better than they had at that moment. And so they consume it for the memory itself. Complete selfishness. You are correct to not like it. You're alive. You're immortal. As a mortal, we want to eat life with a shovel. We want everyone to be happy and everyone to be successful. And, and, and all these things because our life ends. It is a definitive end. And we know that. And that's why we have it. When you're immortal, where I disagree with Brentron, an immortal doesn't have that attachment. Your eternity is ennui. It's boredom. You forget what it's like to be in love and to like someone and true. You can't feel love. It's obsession. You can't remember what lust was like because you don't have a lust for blood. And it's different. And because of that, think back to all the gothic films you've seen of vampires. Or Anne Rice did it beautifully. Her whole line is about these vampires just in eternal drama trying to get life again. And they can never have it. And these, these are like dynastic badass vampires and so when Brentron mentions the antediluvians rising up against the second gen remember the second gen were blessed because Cain loved them best and so they had that direct uh relationship Zilla was Cain's lover Irad was like the son to Enosh right to Enoch Enoch was like a son to Cain and if you historically look at it a lot of things say he actually was a son of Cain that's not the point he had his that's what Cain had those three and so when those three made their own to feel that power, they forgot their father's lesson. He said, do not do it. Do not do it because we're cursed. But they didn't get what that curse was. They learned. Those 13 rose up to kill them because they wanted what they had. And it wasn't power. Everyone assumes it was gen and power and whatnot. They had that, being of the third gen. It wasn't that. It was the emotions and the relationship they had with Cain. You never read that Cain walked around and played granddad to the third gen, ever. He wanted no part of them. And so what this is pointing out is a miniature version of that same play, that same tragedy. They're all seeking acceptance. They're all seeking forgiveness. They're all seeking uh, enjoyment from their existence, but welcome to the curse of Cain. That's what he endures. There isn't any. It's just a repeat cycle. And so these little selfish moments where they start killing stuff is what goes on. Does that... Paint a different picture, Mike, as you stroke your beard staring at me. <laughs> it does. It, it adds a dimension. I'm, I, I, guess, I guess what I'm saying is that if they have forever to pursue relationships and to gain value, perhaps in mortals, perhaps in other immortals, I think that makes loss hurt more because... You, there could have been no end to the amount of time you had with someone, right? As opposed to as as opposed to this idea that you have to lose it to truly appreciate. It's like no, you don't. You have to lose it to truly know how much it fucking hurts. And now I know, and now you know <laughs> why I know you're a bruja, not a gangrel. Well, I'm a bruja myself, <laughs> and I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> uh, actually, with, with Mike, and, and I'm gonna be the Easter egg guy for this episode, I guess. Uh, but 
um, sadness is what makes you heal from that loss. And the sadness that he feels is what makes him being able to recover from that. And you can see it in Inside Out. It's, uh, you need sadness to go over that. And that also gives value to what happened when you were um, happy. And that's what he'll you to go back to, to, to that place and state. Um, it, it's, the loss is inevitable. So the, 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 the lesson is not to not get attached because uh, you don't want to feel that loss, is to be able to feel your sadness and emotion so you can go over that and it doesn't grow as a seed inside of you and that you can become bitter. Accept the sadness. Uh, well, right. I'm gonna tell the listeners right now, this is the podcast right here. This is awesome. <laughs> right, this is, you guys did very good. I'm gonna go on because I feel that this philosophy can keep going uh, yeah. from different yeah. angles. So what we're gonna do now is we're gonna go ahead and jump forward to uh, chapter two. This is where we covered dead but not damned. And uh, here the topic is basically the culture of the road. It's all about the road and how it's made up. And uh, it starts with two sides of the one road, which you've heard that already. But I'm going to let these guys go deep into it, but we'll give a little starting point. It's uh, prodigals are made either naturally through their experiences or through training. What do you guys think of that? Well, I, I kind of said it already early on. Um, I find I find more value in the words of a prodigal who was lost and instinctively was drawn to the tenets of this road. It's just that's. That might be my personal preference, the religious guy in me, I don't know. I, I think that experience is the best teacher and it, it gives you um, the, the most piercing impact uh, with your words. I enjoy that. Uh, Brennan, looks like you're about to say something. Well, what I was going to say is um, with the uh, canines learning the path intrinsically, that makes sense to me. If you are embraced and you have no instruction on another road, it would make sense you would follow what you've known while you were alive. What doesn't make sense to me is how you could really tutor someone in the road as they were after they were embraced. I, I feel as though that would be mostly a repetition of things that they had learned while they were alive. And that that is my, my I guess, my question to y'all. How do you reconcile that without it being like... Um, <laughs> a vampire being set down to hear what it's already learned. Thomas. So I, I would use the book material actually in the Meriton Floss, especially at the end of the book, where uh, I know that at some point you have a, a merit of academy scholar where you know people that are already invested in, in, the, in the road of humanity <laughs> and have famous prodigal that can help you out. And that gives you a, 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 an easier access to knowledge, to control. Um, I like that part, but I also, and I think that when you are being teached something, you can learn it easily, but does it stick? Because that's the whole point of the free will. Uh, if you discover yourself and you can just discover it yourself, it, it, it's not something that you need to rebel off as you are vampire teenager years that you need to, to curse this up. It, it's you. It, you made that choice and that sticks better. So I understand both. Uh, I, I respect both and I understand that some people would just or oh, kindred would go one way or another. Uh, but I also prefer uh, going more organically into it because I think that's more a, a permanent road. That's something that's been teach and unteach. Fair enough. Nick, you had something. 
I'm going to have to, I, I kind of got to bounce back because this, I think they, they, they double down on that, uh, on the, the ideology of, of how foreign this is to the vampiric mind. It's kind of why I like, I, I nicknamed this section, what would Jesus do? The Canaanite version. Because uh, it goes over this, because it, it goes over the idea once again of how not natural this is to to the vampiric mind. It makes you wonder if a revenant somehow found themselves in a position where they might want to be on this road. How would they even conceptualize it? They were born out of the womb with a beast, with uh, those impulses and urges. And if uh, and if being so human is so hard to understand, would they even stand a chance? It's almost like you have to have a mentor. Well, you ever heard the phrase that it takes a community to raise a child? Yes. That's exactly what this is pointing out. This is the two sides of the coin. So the two sides, real quick, Bob version. You got one side that says, you're born human if you're from a morally upright community. And they point out here the advent of a Muslim faith, of Christian faith, that they give you um, that moral upbringing. Right? There's a guy that everyone's already doing, naturally. So anyone you're observing is part of this community already. And so that's where your morality is going to pull from. However, to your point, nothing stops you from ignoring it or not following it or using it to your advantage. This is Michelle's point as well, that just because you see this is what everybody's doing, they're the sheep. But if I'm the wolf, now I just know how to get closer to the sheep, is what they're pointing out. And that's the other side of the coin. And the other side of the coin, I think, is meant to teach those who don't get the community aspect. You don't get the high morals mm. and what it is to be human. I'm going to have to show you because if I found you... I believe it was in Canaan, where they were burning people, sacrifices, ritual sacrifices to alleged gods, as it was reported, or to demons, as they were called, because they didn't know their religion. But they were fine to each other. It's just if you came up to see what was going on, you might have thought some other way if you're from this Christian community. And indeed, that's where they got their bad name. Come to find out that the Canaanites were suffering because of disease. They weren't initially burning their dead. They were burying them. And there was no gods they were sacrificing them to. They were burning them to try to stave off a disease that was wiping them out. And that's what happened. But this path is pointing out those the different perspective. If you're coming from the moral high ground and you see them, you're going to go, to teach these people how to be. Meanwhile, if you're the Canaanite in the community, uh, I can't say that right. It's my Canaanite. Canaanite. There you go. If I'm a Canaanite and I'm there, um, I'm a person going, we're trying to live and we really don't feel any sort of, we have a different religion and we, we may not worship the gods you do, but we don't intrinsically want to harm one another. And that's what this is pointing out to me. However, there is a truth, and it does hammer at home from both Thomas's point and Nick's. You're, you're a vampire. You're not supposed to want this because that beast is everything. And that revenant point puts it right in the middle, like really slams that point sure. home. Yeah, I, I, what I really like about the chapter two, it, it, I think it gives the, the whole context of what you can use as an uh, ever, um, environment value, um, how to, to create a campaign, scenarios and, and stuff. When they talk about ghouls, that uh, they don't really encourage it, but at least if you need to have one, you need to have empathy. This, this right here is a good scenario. Uh, the celebration, the lament, uh, lamentation of Seth, that could be a whole campaign. Uh, the only sites, the, 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 the famous uh, prodigals, the furors, the Prometheans, um, there is uh, the bad guy, the post that, that just fall from the trees of the road of humanity and you could have the feeling to understand what happened, maybe chase them. And all this is good context if you want to understand the moral standpoint of the dark age value of, uh, 
of that philosophy. And I really like that part where you understand that even the people in the road of humanity, uh, like Venture, would go for the road of kings just to, yes, be human and chivalrous, but also look down upon the low clans. And all that gives you strats and vision on how that society based on the road to humanity campaign scenario kind of thing could work. And you can go up, you can go down, but in the VTM, it's always a spiral. So you can try to spin it out and try to, to, to get it up, but at some point you're gonna fall. And what I really like to do when I play VTM in any kind of game is to see the beginning of my character and the end of it. I always play a character so he can die. Some, most of the time he doesn't die that way, but I see his path, what he wants. And I think that there is enough material in the chapter two so you can see where it goes, give you hints, give you leads, give you roads, uh, and just go along with it. All good points. Uh, to, this, uh, to this point, because you mentioned a lot of that, Thomas, right there, kind of ramming through the culture, which is needed. Um, like I said, we could talk, we could pick this apart. Um, but in pertaining to what everyone would be using this for, the road of the book, it absolutely makes sense uh, to have that kind of get the book to dig, really, to get those points in a finer notion. And as you mentioned, the merits and flaws in this book help for that amazingly well. The also gives you insights into paragons of this path. For instance, the healer, aka Solid, is definitely cited as a paragon <laughs> here. You also have Julia and Tasia. But then they give you two apostates. Sario de Verona is in here. And you have a Zafar Al, I will not butcher that. It's, is, is that Baghdadi? Yeah. Al Baghdadi, okay, we'll keep that going. I, I did butcher it. I said I wasn't gonna. Um, but you will find a, you will find a weird uh, sort of a, a left curve when they mention the path of Athens. And this is something everyone in the road to humanity memorizes. Uh, we won't go over this verbatim, but basically it's their ethics. It's like the ethics everyone has, but then the different versions come out and obviously the deviations yeah. of the roads. And they have that there too. Um, here you'll find the roads of the night, uh, the clans of Via Humanitas, that, uh, how they view it. Won't uh, go through it, but it's all very insightful. And if you're going to be on the road of humanity, it's very good to see that it's in the book and this is what they suggest. I underline suggest. You're the one who dictates the story and how you're going to follow it, but they give you at least a baseline uh, to build a story from. Factions within the road is something that is going to throw you. Uh, a lot of the roads, you talk about, uh, well... They'll mention everything the same so far. However, when I read Factions, I was like, that's going to require me to pause and really mm -hmm. dig deep because how are you part of the same road? Do you have Factions in a road if you're all Ashen Priest up and following what you follow? And they mentioned the Academy, the Grey House, and the Twilight Order. Don't let those walk away from you. Mm -hmm. Read those to get yet further deviations in the road of humanity. Uh, finally, paths are in here. Uh, that is the Path of Breath, the Path of Community, the path of illumination, the path of vigor. To that end, we're not gonna jump through character creation and whatnot. Instead, we're gonna dive into those a little bit for the more or less the end part of this. And I think cause that's 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 a better read uh, to get to understanding that. Uh, so the path of breath. I'm gonna call on, we'll say, Mike, if you wanna start us out on that. All right. Um, the ethics of the path of breath are, do not shy away from human labors. Um, therein is found the spark of life. Uh, the beast dwells within the lifeless heart and cannot endure those things that remind it of human vitality. Uh, life is not so much a physical state as a spiritual one. Um, the virtues are conscience and self-control. Um, 
And I like to call this the path of that old river, denial. Uh, <laughs> so these are these are vampires who, in every part of their daily life, as much as they can, try to mimic um, human lifestyles, right? So if they are wounded, I suppose, they might spend some time resting, even though their vampiric flesh doesn't bleed and their organs don't take harm. Um, these people associate with mortals as much as they can to get reminders of those habits, those things that you can forget when you spend all your time in a court of other undead creatures, right? They, it's, um, it's humanity by immersion. Um, I appreciate the path. It just seems like a fool's errand to read it to me, but good for uh, um, <laughs> storytelling material. Like it's, it, is a, it is a tale I would want to watch somebody go through, but I know how that story ends. Hmm. I got nothing to say to that. All right. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I agree. I, I, I haven't seen that in play, honestly, of uh, the Road Deviants. I've never seen that play. So to that end, we have also the Path of Community, or uh, Tariq El-Uma. Uma? Uma? I don't know. It's one of the two. Uh, Brentron, you want to dive? I do, and I'm glad you tried to pronounce that instead of me. <laughs> so, uh, Path of Community is the um, it's the uh, it's the path that grew out of the more civil aspects of the Path of Humanity, obviously. And I can really see this being popular amongst uh, prodigal Prometheans, as it uh, as the name implies. It takes the uh, it focuses on the entire aspect of the community as a whole rather than uh, just uh, the selfish, I'll say, perspective of uh, the individual. Uh, particularly um, popular in, uh, in uh, uh, Muslim lands, this, um, the virtues of this are conscience and self-control. Making sense, right? Conscience so that they know uh, they can gauge their actions against how it will affect uh, the people around them. But uh, their, their ethics, I thought, were what... Um, one ethic actually uh, stood out to me that they have, and that is uh, uh, the third one. The races of Cain and Seth in their entirety are the greater community in which you exist. So with them, uh, I think this breaks from common uh, mindsets of Canaanites at the time in that they see all of uh, both vampires and humans as being one large community. They don't, they don't set themselves apart from it. Now, my Easter egg time, because it's uh, one of my favorite clans, uh, Clan Asimai, the children of Hakim, one of their kabars is actually this community. It's a law of Hakim that this is in there, and it cracks me up to see it as a road. I, I sat here smirking because Mike referred to this as Path of the Homie. I couldn't stop laughing uh, when, I read, when I read that. Um, it absolutely is, and for everything you talked about. But I think here they made it a road and a philosophy because it is taken from Muslim communities. That's where mm -hmm. it comes from. But the fact that the children of Hakim had it means it's far older, right? Their, uh, their whole goal, uh, the Hakim anyway, had put forth is that they were to be hidden amongst to look for the worst of canines. And then how you do that is you be a part of it. Um, so I, I don't know, I enjoy it. It's good to see it's a whole thing. Mm -hmm. And now you too can be a part of it. Fourteen ninety five. <laughs> Join me. <laughs> so, um. I'm going to throw Nick under a bus here with Via Luminous, and I'm not going to pronounce the path of whatever that is. Nick, you can. Go ahead. The path of whatever that is? 
is is okay. Fine. Is it lumin? Is it illumination? It, it is illumination, okay, but by a luminous. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, this path, sir, <laughs> uh, it, it goes along uh, some some fanciful theories. We'll say, to, to say the least. Uh, the first is that Cain uh, is without sin. It's where it starts, right? Or even the capacity for sin. You know why? Because there were no rules of God and man when Cain committed his murder. Therefore, he couldn't possibly know it. So when he committed murder, it wasn't a thing. And then he was punished afterwards. What's up with all that? Um, these people, <laughs> they, uh, they go out and they, and they try to attain Golconda through logical reasoning and deduction. Uh, to, to try and, I guess, um, Socrates their way through life to find an inevitable balance within reason. Uh, the reason why this path seems so weird is because they don't have conscience as a as as any type of thing that they would follow. Instead, they they take the path of conviction and self control. Uh, so they flip it this other way of just almost adamantly arguing with themselves through life uh, in, until they, they find themselves in some situation where they can find mental acuity and awareness. Really what I call this is uh, madness. It's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, oh, man, it, it's, like they, it's like they tried to put an Eastern philosophy into it, right? Because uh, Eastern philosophy is all about finding balance within yourself and then projecting that outward rather than, uh, you know, trying to find other things outward and then bringing them into yourself to find balance. It's, uh, I don't know. I don't know if they hit what they were trying to do with this. Just to me, it felt like they were off the mark. It's, uh, I'm not feeling like this really belongs here on this road or that it really makes much sense. It's interesting. It's interesting. I, I want to point out that the roads are philosophies, right? That's their that's their whole thing. And so they're not meant for you to it's not meant for us to read and go, they all fit perfectly and this is what would be here. It's this is what came from the main road. And you remember there are many different subsects and whatnot that go into this. And this is just where some of those philosophies go. Not all philosophies stick. Uh, but to this one, I do find it interesting the point of if it's not conscience, it's conviction. And to that end, Thomas, what's conviction versus conscience? Uh, that's a very good question, and I'm uh, really uh, put under the bus right now because I was really <laughs> to, to talk about the path of vigor. And you will, uh, and you will. I just want to do this first. What's your so, so f for me, conscience is really uh, based on the remorse and the empathy, when conviction is when you, you can put yourself in, in a position where the, the means justify the ends. Uh, and you can ju just rush through it. Um, I would put, for example, a Sambra with conviction, but I would put uh, anyone that has a high humanity of conscience, for sure. I agree. It's passion versus logic yeah. in, in, in another way, and I, it's a beautiful way to put it. And because you said it, and I don't have to call on you now, would you please walk us through what the path of vigor is? Oh, yes, please, because... No! You're fine. We can hear you. Okay, I'm fine. All right. Uh, so, yes, I'm, I'm very, very happy to, to be the one talking about the path of vigor because this is the one I like the most. I'm, uh, I'm truly blessed. 
So the path of vigor uh, reaches a sense of respect for not only the ideal of humanity, but it also its nature. Rovers, uh, uh, I'm not going to talk, uh, call them like that because I have another name for them, but are drawn to the human tendency to innovate, expand its horizon, and otherwise move forward for both good and ill. And that's what I call a wanderer. So they're, of course, part of the road of humanity, and they have the same tenant as the other one. You know, not do most anus and demental act, uh, cause violation, murder, uh, violence. And um, the, what they want to do is being a wanderer. Um, and I see it as a, as a character that moves around uh, and is a traveler that goes and discover everything and that always remain in motion, uh, whether physically, mentally, or spiritually, embrace change. So he's always looking to learn more, uh, to, to understand more uh, how people live, how he, he can remain humane in his own way. Um, uh, embrace change, for it will come regardless. And that stagnancy begets boredom, uh, inflexibility and cruelty. Uh, so all of news to the beast control. Um, stay fluid, move. And I, I really like that with a KT, for example, that would be shunned away because they're always perceived as a bad omen, like a bad crow coming to uh, uh, the king's court and uh, talk about bad news. And I think that is a, a very fashionable, good character that you could play in a very low uh, count number of a, of a campaign, for sure. I think it's an awesome explanation of the past, guys. I really like that Take a Path of Vigor as well. Um, it's less dry. I'll admit, when I first read it, there, there's a point there I was missing in the traveling uh, to other kingdoms to be a messenger of sort. I didn't think about that, but that fits very nice in uh, what they're talking about there. Thanks, Thomas. Um, but we're not done with you, Mike. We definitely know that there's a Cane Bro Crunch section. And you have a top two, of course, powers in this book. And I even see that you wrote down a merit here that you wanted to talk about. So we'll close this out here. What do we got? Yeah, so... Mm, the merit. The merit is sweet. Basically what the merit does is it turns your road modifier into a universal modifier on all roles. All roles. When fighting whites. Now, this is narrow, because how often are you going to run into a vampire who's fallen all the way to the beast? SJW, that's W-I-G-H-T-S. That's just their disclaimer. <laughs> that's entirely different. Just want you to know that. But if you, if, you weed, weed. if you read the way it's described in the book under this merit, it's not just like you get plus two to your, to your sword, right? It's right. mental manipulation. It is investigative roles. It is... Um, if you need to convince someone to let you buy so you don't have to stab them on the way to fighting the white. It's like anything you do as a member of the Twilight Order in pursuit of one of the soulless. That's what they call whites in the, in the world of humanity. Um, <laughs> well, what is that? For interest of discomfort, I'm feeling. What is the soulless and what is a white? So they... A, a white is a vampire that's completely lost themselves, right? It's... it's had the 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 man just ripped from the beast and now the beast is what abides in this body and the man isn't even a memory it's not like they flipped it's like the man it's gone and now the beast is what lives here and um, hence the soul is perfect hence the soul 
Um, but this, the, the Twilight Order, you, you read about them at this point or much earlier in the book. They're the specific people on this road who hunt down the soulless because they feel like it's their duty to the road and to other canines and humans and blah, blah, blah. Um, but this merit, which is only three points, excellent value for you Cambros out there. Well, but that's the Mike, price of permanent fangs. That's nothing. Mike, what's uh, what's this merit called? Isn't it called Oath of the Cambro? I mean, <laughs> it could be. It, it, I'm, you know, it's called Oath of Twilight um, because, you know, the, the order in the book is the Twilight Order. But that this shit yep. is badass and it's tiny and it's cheap. Well, you want it's, it. It's also what, very specific. It yeah, is. That's exactly it, what it is. It's a railroad. What this is is an excellent opportunity for an aspiring player to, to take this and say, I want every opportunity I can possibly think of to try and use this merit in game. So let's spend all day looking for whites. I mean, we did we did say we were talking about Kane Bros, right? I mean, I no, we, we, we are. We, no, no, we're not only talking about that. I mean, you knew Nick was going to say something. We, we immediately know Nick's going to say something when you had that. But there were two disciplines, too. I'll, I'll guide you here. Uh, yeah, yeah. Beast um, communion. So beast communion is is real. It's it's real nice, right? It is. Yep. I've again never seen anything else like this in another book. Sweet. Uh, you need animalism three and all specs four. Um, and what basically happens is if you win on a succession of rolls, there's like three. The, a person's beast is not just permitted but forced to think with a reasoning mind and speak for itself. Now you might not like what it says but you can use the combination of your animalism and your ability to perceive the soul of a person to force the beast to speak with the voice of a man. Um, <laughs> Which we're going to hold there because you paused. And I, I, saw I don't Brennan need to first. say anything. I saw Brennan first. Go for it. I have a question, uh, Mr. Cambro expert. Why would anyone want to do this? Thomas. Oh. It, because this is the most amazing power I ever saw in you. years. Yeah, I mean, like, I'm not going to disagree with it. That's awesome. <laughs> I don't know what I do with it. Okay, right? Th that in role play is exactly when you can speak to animals with animalisms or any kind of spirit in werewolf. So you can have deeper knowledge and very fun moment in the role play as you have never seen before. Look at what it's so the beast. Clan, the beast of different clans are as well very different in their mind. A ravenous beast is slightening thing, while Nosferatu is base and wretched, and Ruja is brutal and proud. So, for example, asking a Troyer beast why it slay, uh, in, uh, for example, why he, he, he killed the Kainite's loveliest and most favorable ghoul during frenzy, might result in the answer of, "End quote." I hated her and her pretty face. That is something that can cut to the chase and give you so much uh, of bullshit on anything of the reason on why someone is doing like that. And that gives the storyteller some big, big stick of doing so much good role play with their players. That is one of the best part of that book by far, but really, really far. Agreed. I agree 100%. <laughs> Raises I give out. Raises, <laughs> raises give be. Thank you. I couldn't have said it better. <laughs> so, uh, um, the other insight, the only other angle I will give to you this, Brendan, because uh, you come from Requiem. I mm -hmm. want you to think what is the bestial claim that they throw at you in, in Requiem that almost worships their bond with the beast? 
Are you referring to the Circle of the Crow? Belial's Brood. Ah, uh, you're talking, okay, yes. Belial's yes. Brood, right? It's all right. Everyone slips past once in a while. I got one. I named the Kurt. But when you refer to that, I want you to imagine this power to help you make sense of it with them. You go to see a hierophant in Belial's Brood, and they're they're all like hairless, but they got these weird markings. It's halfway up the wall in a darkened chamber. There's blood and corpses everywhere as they've, they've, they've done their feeding. And you might be there to kill them. Or, and you only find this hierophant, which is clearly dangerous, <laughs> right? But when you go to speak to it, it just growls at you and stares at you. Clearly, there's an intellect there, or it's about to kill you. This power more than opens up the door for the storyteller to now do exactly what Tom has said. Whether it's seeds, or insight, or information, you know, you're about to get a lesson. And that's what this gives you the ability to understand and to bridge that gap. But it's also corrupting. It's that, too. Remember that. You can talk to someone's beast, and what if you like what it said? Mm-hmm. Right? There's that, too. Uh, Nick? Uh, that's uh, that's the exact same way that I felt about uh, Awaken the Quiet Heart, the the ritual that they put in here. It's uh, it's it's not an overly complicated ritual, but what it does have in it is, like, packs of flavor. It's like the Mrs. Dash of a ritual. Um, you got to go through gathering components, and then even after you go through that, uh, what it does is it brings in even more uh, role play opportunities when you're when you are already enchanted by this ritual, and you've got to go through the day with it. So it's uh, I think you could base an entire session on just this one ritual with with the, at least one player, if not multiple players, packing together a beautiful experience. And I agree with that completely. And on that, I do note, Mike, you have down here mortal skin, but we're out of time, sir. Um, but I want to thank everybody for coming out. Thomas, you especially. It is always a joy. It's uh, Every time we had you out, it was like a straight-up interview. But this is how I prefer you. Right there to mix yep. with everybody else, elbow <laughs> yep. to elbow, mm-hmm. kind of getting in the mix. It's a, it's a great time, my friend. Thanks for coming out. Yep. It's, a, it's always a pleasure. And uh what I really like about uh, the, the, you know, the evolution of chapters and, and 25 years uh, podcast is that the more uh, I, I hear you, uh, I, I listen to, to, to the podcast every single week, is that everything comes from passion. And once again, thank you for being so dedicated, you guys, to, to the podcast. It's, uh, it's a blessed to see the rebirth of our beloved franchise. And uh, no compromise on quality, passion, love. And uh, yes, that was a blast reading that book. To see here and there Louis de la Pointe du Lac and Lestat talking about how they, they were supposed to, to get close to that humanity, even if it's basically weakening their uh, Achilles heel to have peace of mind and soul. And yes, that, that was a blast. So thank you for the invitation, guys. Thank you so much. And you're welcome anytime, sir. I mean, any time. Appreciate it. Uh, folks, listen, this is coming out. Uh, I don't even say that. Nick, cut that. But thanks, everyone, for listening. <laughs> I'll talk to you all later. I Thank pray you. I remember that. Thank you for listening to our 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you liked what you heard, please reach out and let us know on Twitter at 25 years of VTM. At our email, info at 25 years VTM.com. On Facebook, at www.facebook.com slash 25 years VTM or on our website www.25yearsvtm.com If you would like to support us we can be found at patreon.com slash 25 years of Vampire the Masquerade